Hey everyone, it's Tom. We're going to re-air one of my favorite episodes again today. It's called The Skeleton in the Museum. And the reason why we're putting it out again is that we just finished the next part of the story. So, today is the story of Carol Orzel. And then tomorrow, we'll meet her again, sort of, in her new home at the Mutter Museum. Alright, here's the first part. KYW Original Podcasts From KYW News Radio in Philadelphia, this is Scroll Down. I'm Tom Rickard. Today on the podcast. We don't customarily uh, accept donated bodies, and they're occasionally offered to us. I think she lived a, a more full life than most people. <laughs> but this is such a rare disease of immense scientific importance. We're really only. Uh, eight to nine hundred people around the world. I met most of them. It made sense to accept this offer, and so we're going to do it. If you walk into the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, you're going to see a lot of very, very strange things. Like the plaster cast and actual liver of conjoined twins. The skull collection of Dr. Joseph Hurdle. 139 of them from the 1800s. Albert Einstein's brain is there too, cut into extremely thin slices and preserved in glass slides. And sometime soon, maybe by the end of the year, the Mutter Museum will have another exhibit, the skeleton of a woman with an extremely rare disease named Carol Orzel. Mark Abrams is a reporter for KYW News Radio. He's in the studio with me. Mark, thanks for making the time. Great to be with you, Tom. How did you find out about Carol Orzel? Well, it started actually with an invitation that was uh, sent to KYW News Radio for a rather unusual memorial service at Inglis House for Carol Orzel. It had a little bit of information about uh, the disease that she had been suffering with, and it, it really, there was something within that invitation that said, this is something to go and see and hear, because it was going to be reflections of just the staff and residents and friends of Carol. Carol Orzel had a, a very rare disease. What can you tell me about it? What it is, is an extremely rare bone disease, fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva. Now, that's... FOP for short. It's truly a, a, a very debilitating disease that uh, takes root over many years. There is no cure for it at this time, uh, but there is a researcher here in Philadelphia who's done a great, great deal of, uh, of work on it. Oh, sure. My name is uh, Frederick Kaplan. And was very familiar with Carol. Yes, I'm, I'm the Isaac and Rose Nassau Professor of Orthopedic Molecular Medicine at, at the University of Pennsylvania. And spoke at this uh, memorial service, or maybe service of life, you would call it, uh, for uh, this truly remarkable woman. So you, ha- you have a rare disease and a person who happens to study it all in one place. Tell me about the the researcher. Well, Dr. Frederick Kaplan... uh, I met Carol in uh, 1985 uh, when the physician here, the new physician, asked me to see a patient who had uh, FOP. He was involved in skeletal muscle research. He found out about Carol 
and the others who were suffering with FOP. And when I first met Carol, I was inspired by her. I was tremendously inspired. But I had never, I never saw anybody in my orthopedic career who had uh, her condition. I was kind of amazed by it. And uh, at that time, I met Dr. Zaslov, and I realized that there were no other, uh, no other physicians in the world working on this. And it was the worst, worst orthopedic condition I had ever seen. I mean, Tom, this is a disease that is so I mean, rare. There are really only uh, 800 to 900, 900 people, people around the world. the world. I met most of them. Who have this it, kind of disease. It's an extremely rare condition where the body forms an extra skeleton. It transforms the muscles and soft connective tissues in, in the body into a second skeleton of, of extra bone that crosses the joints. Uh, locks them in place and makes uh, moving completely impossible. And any attempt to remove this extra bone creates more injury that will lead to uh, more robust bone formation. Over time, uh, Carol was really instrumental in helping to provide a lot of good information that uh, really led Dr. Kaplan to some groundbreaking research at Penn. It took us uh, 15 years, but in 2006, we discovered the a gene that causes FOP. My colleague Eileen Shore and I and our, our other colleagues at Penn uh, discovered the gene that causes this condition. And from there, that became the center of the bullseye for the pharmaceutical industry to begin to develop uh, drugs that will tame what's uh, now a an outrageous disease. Uh, he, he mentioned at the service that, uh, that she uh, was actually there when they cut the ribbon on the official dedication of the FOP Research Lab at at Penn. And he would also bring her in every year to uh, his students, and uh, she addressed them. Yes, uh, Carol came to the University of Pennsylvania every year for, for many years, for decades, and she would meet the students on the very first day of medical school. She would tell them her story and give a human face and a human perspective in depth to uh, what the medical students were learning in genetics and in their other in their other studies, and they learned quickly that diseases are not only uh, physiologic processes, but they affect human beings. He said uh, on on nearly every occasion that she addressed the Penn medical students that were under his supervision for research, uh, she brought a standing, standing ovation. ovation year after year. She would just tell her story by by these students who were just so impressed by her. Not, not only her determination, but her character and, and will to live and to not let this disease slow her quality of life down. She told the students that, you know, you only have one life to live, and this may not be what you wanted. It's certainly not what I wanted, she said, but I'm going to deal with what I have, and I'm going to make the best of it. She died just a little bit before her 59th birthday. She lived beyond the life expectancy of somebody with FOP. That life expectancy is around 40. She imparted in them, I think, a tremendous spirit to be a physician, not just a scientist, not just not just learn the science, but learn the people who have the condition. You said her FOP developed over time. That, that progression of the disease, what, is, what does that look like? Well, it, according to Dr. Kaplan, uh, this bone it just grows, and it it, it grows within in your inside your skin uh, in areas where it should not. The neck beca- becomes fused, then the shoulders and the back, eventually the hips and the knees, and then the elbows and the wrists uh, and the jaw, 
and uh, movement becomes more and more uh, difficult. You're not able to move. There's pain, and there has to be pain management. Uh, bumps and bruises that would be innocuous to a healthy individual can lead to uh, permanent uh, bone uh, ossification and bone formation around a joint that locks the joint up and prevents uh, someone from, from moving. A particularly devastating consequence of FOP, if doctors and dentists don't know about the condition, uh, if, if a patient needs dental work, for example, and goes to the dentist and gets a shot in their jaw, uh, that perhaps can cause locking of the jaw, and the patient will never again be able to open the, their mouth to eat. So the food has to be pureed, a patient lose weight, and it leads to a devastating spiral can dramatically affect the quality and the quantity of a person's life. But uh, Carol just... She, she, he said she was a real feisty trooper. I mean, she really didn't let it slow her down, filled with life. Uh, she, uh, she got around in that wheelchair, uh, motorized wheelchair, uh, staff talked about, uh, sometimes she would just come to the front desk and say, I'm going out to dinner. And she went out. <laughs> she, nobody, nobody worried. She didn't have anybody accompanying her most times. She was pretty much on her own, and she wanted it to be that way. She wanted to be independent. Carol was one of the first people I met here. I actually met Carol probably day two of my, my job here. She rolled into the computer lab in her motorized wheelchair and said, put this keyboard up on this prop thing and leave me alone. I need, I, I got to get online. I've got things to do. My name is Dawn Waller. I'm the director of the Adapted Technology Program. And I said, oh, my name's Dawn. Do you need any help? And she's like, if I need your help, I'll call you. Now leave me alone. I've got things to do. I'm like, which is when I kind of thought she was going to whack me with that stick. Dawn was in charge of activities and, and various things, and, and particularly computers and the, and the technology early on of getting computers into the hands of residents. She was one of our first technology users, and I think Carol realized early on, like when we think of technology, that motorized wheelchair gives someone mobility. All of these other things give them quality of life. It gives them a social world, access beyond the walls, although Carol Carol wasn't one to stay in the building anyway. <laughs> Carol began uh, in the early days, Tom, uh, this was, Carol would get on the computer and into chat rooms. In the early days, those were very primitive. Um, but, you know, she went on to do her computer stuff. She was actually in an online chat room. And and she she met a guy. Um, which is how she met the love of her life. He was in another state. He actually moved here. And he had some health issues himself. But he actually moved here and he spent time with her. And he, he was practically, they talked about him being there every, every day. day. They were together every, every single day. day. Probably most of the day, all, at night, he would go home for six hours and sleep, devoted to taking care of her, helping her travel the city when she couldn't navigate as easily as she did. And what happened to that relationship? Um, he became very ill and had to move uh, away for some medical treatment. He, his illness developed uh, into a more serious case, and he had to to go away. Uh, that did not stop their relationship. She still came up to the computer lab. Uh, initially, they would email each other, but as Carol's condition declined, um, they would talk on the, the telephone. So we ha we rigged up a special thing that would hold a cell phone or a, a regular phone to her ear for hours, and she would talk to him then. You, you wonder about how even married couples would, 
would would deal with uh, with a debilitating illness and how how but they drew strength from each other. But again, uh, what happened with him is uh, his condition progressed and uh, he had to he passed, move away, and then eventually died. At some point, inevitably, Carol's health got to the point where she couldn't do a lot of the things that she'd like to do, like go out in the city. Right, she did, and it was as the disease progressed. She wasn't able to get out as much. She could no longer get out of bed. She couldn't take the pain anymore of, of even moving. Um, sometimes just if she's laying in her wheelchair, like it was too hard to drive, the pain would be too intense. Even pushing her in her wheelchair, if you hit like the little change from going to the hallway into the elevator, that was excruciating pain. So we did what we could then after that and did everything in her room for her with technology. You know, that didn't mean that she didn't really uh, want to do things. So the staff would come into her room and they'd bring We'd take the tablets. tablets down there and still make sure she had access to what she enjoyed. Get online. She was still very connected online. Uh, she found that to be a, a whole world where she could express herself and, and to, to be very human. Carol was an independent woman. No one was going to tell her she couldn't. She had she threw parties here in this long-term care facility. <laughs> she really, really loved that so much. Uh, she had a lot of friends at Inglis House. Everybody knew Carol. Everybody in the place, the doctors, the staff, residents. She didn't stay in her room when she when she was able to get around. She crammed so much in, be it you know her um, her painting. When she couldn't paint any longer, she she could still put together crafts and things. She created things with her hands. When she could no longer do that, she got onto the computer and began to create things there. There were personalized greeting cards for folks and things you know, like that. Toward the end, they were, you know, saying that, you know, how 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 would Carol like to be remembered? And Dawn, she liked to be a public woman. She wants to be remembered as an attractive, independent, strong woman who, who took, took no, no nonsense, nonsense from, from anyone. anyone. <laughs> That's that was our Carol. That was that was my girl Carol. You know, and Tom, after hearing all of the descriptions and all of the memories, even though I never met Carol, I felt as if I had met Carol. I felt as if I knew this woman. And a part of me felt sad that I never got to actually physically introduce myself to her. She lived fast and furious and was not afraid, without fear, without fear. She, the story, Tom, really touched me deeply. And the, uh, just talking to people afterward uh, really touched me very deeply. And that's, for me, for a crusty old news guy, that, that doesn't happen often. You know, maybe it's just getting older, but uh, it really had an effect on me. Dawn says that Carol didn't talk about death very much, but she did have one one final request. Tell me about where Carol's body is going next. Well, they, they all kind of were surprised, but uh, uh, Carol had decided that she wanted to donate her body to the Mütter Museum. And why? Well, she was excited to go hang next to Harry at the Mütter Museum. There was a former English resident who had also had FOP. His name was Harry Eastlack. He, his family, initially donated his body to Temple University School of Medicine, but later the skeleton was transferred to the Moody Museum uh, of the College of Physicians. And Dr. Kaplan said he spent many hours there looking 
at that body and bringing students in and trying to just figure out what, you know, how this uh, FOP really impacts a person's body and their skeletal structure they could see. And he told Carol about it. And so Carol decided, oh, she wanted to join Harry. Yeah, why not? You know, maybe it's kind of an unusual request, but nonetheless, Carol was thinking about others and about maybe finding a way to come up with uh, ways to prevent it and, and ways to, uh, to attack it. So she talked to Dr. Kaplan about it. Uh, she always spoke highly of Dr. Kaplan. Uh, make sure you get a hold of Dr. Kaplan and let him know. She knew of his connection to the museum and the exhibit of uh, Harry Slack, and he said, okay, you know, if that's what you want, we can do that. Uh, if you would just uh, say your name again and what your title is with the museum. Robert Hicks, director of the Mütter Museum and Historical Medical Library of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Dr. Uh, Robert Hicks and I spoke about uh, Carol's decision to have her body placed there. Dr. Kaplan contacted us about Carol. Uh, we've only just learned that Carol was Dr. Kaplan's very first FOP patient from decades ago. So she's obviously very significant to him. But he contacted us to say Carol was interested in becoming part of our collection because she had seen the skeleton of Harry Eastlack. She knew his importance to science. She knew his importance even after death in our museum as an educator of many, many people. She wanted to do the same. It was her wish. He was touched by the idea that she really wanted to make this donation to Mutter. No one else has a... Uh, specimen collection related to FOP. We do. And having a second full human skeleton alongside Harry gives us a population. It gives us basis for comparison and further analysis. So the acquisition of Carol is an amazing thing to happen to us. Uh, and we are hugely indebted to Carol's generosity in making that decision herself and working it through her physician, Dr. Frederick Kaplan. Be part of a, a legacy of research and, and, and study. Uh, in some months' time, we will be able to introduce Carol to the world. Yes, you're right. It is known for its medical oddities, and you mentioned some of them. But its research uh, on some of these things is open to students here in Philadelphia and a lot of students around the world who access it by uh, way of, uh, you know, the net. That's exactly right. In fact, that happens now. Um, our collections are available for research and study, and at any given moment, we have upwards of a dozen scientific projects, and FOP research has been one of them. You know, amazingly, Tom, it was uh, her, Dr. Kaplan's work with Carol that actually led to some some really groundbreaking work at the FOP lab at Penn. In fact, 12 years ago, Dr. Kaplan and the team that worked with him they were able to identify the gene, an actual gene that causes FOP. Carol was certainly a part of that because of working so closely with Dr. Kaplan in, in, you know, in him observing her. Uh, one of the odd aspects of FOP research that's come about in recent years, to which nobody has a, has a conclusion, relates these FOP sufferers to, believe it or not, uh, casualties of improvised weapons in Afghanistan and Iraq. The soldiers that are injured by these roadside bombs, for example, who might have to suffer an amputation of a limb. Uh, let's say a soldier loses a hand in a bomb accident. Uh, sometimes in these soldiers, some bone growth appears on top of their regular bone growth next to the amputation site. Nobody knows why that is, 
but there's a relationship there to what's happening with an FOP person. So here we have military combat and then an FOP sufferer. There's some kind of link there. So there's a scientific question to be explored. And be able to actually physically see it because this extra layer of bone is growing under the skin you really can't see. Here you'll be able to see. And Carol wanted all to see. When can someone who might be listening to this podcast go to the Motor Museum and see Carol? Well, according to Dr. Hicks, it's probably going to be later in this year. So at this point, you don't have a timetable as to when Carol will be formally displayed, but uh, maybe by the end of the year, when do you think? I expect by the end of the year, uh, we will have a display of Carol. And uh, this is going to take months. Uh, and the, the the process of uh, uh, transforming a body into a skeletal display is not particularly easy when what we're trying to capture here is all the strange anomalies of the bone growth. So this requires a lot of scientific discussion behind the scenes and negotiation with experts. So that's what's going on now. Do we know what the Mutter Museum exhibit starring Carol Skeleton will actually look like? Well, from what they say, they're going to have photos, some biographical information about her and about her connection to Dr. Kaplan, of course. Yes, we are very interested in her life story, of course, as well as the story that she will now tell uh, about her disease. And uh, online, they're going to put a lot more about Carol. The webpage, we can show pictures of her childhood, her life, some maybe oral uh, recounts of her life by her own friends. And uh, we want to remind people she was a person alive and well, functioning, well, maybe not so well. She had friends, she had a life, she had a community. She has a new community and an after-death existence. But we want to push those two together. They want not just for visitors to see the skeleton and, and, and the extra uh, skeletal uh, growth, but they would really like people to know this was a very loving, warm, affectionate, resilient human being who was determined that this was a disease that wasn't going to slow her down, that wasn't going to impede her decisions in life. People will be curious. People will want to know about her. When they see her skeleton, skeletons are as individual as the people we are. And they will see that there's a story here. And what is that story? And uh, when they meet Carol and find out what a vibrant person she was, I think they'll be enchanted. I, I think that'll be very special. Mark, where can people listening follow what you're up to, what you're working on? Well, I am on Twitter at mabrams, KYW1060, the radio.com app. Look for KYW on that, and that's probably one of the best places you can find what we're doing. Mark Abrams, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great pleasure, Tom. And that's it for this week's show. I love this story, and I hope you did too. Maybe someday soon you'll get the chance to meet Carol in her new home at the Motor Museum. The address is 19 South 22nd Street. Not that far from where we make Scroll Down, actually. Right here in the KW News Radio studios in Philadelphia. If you like the show, please find us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. You can follow us on Twitter, too. I'm at T-Rick, T-E-E-R-I-C-K. And the show is at Scroll Down Pod. I'm Tom Rickert. Thanks for listening to Scroll Down. I'll talk to you again next time. I call her my girl, Carol, because that's what she became known as. They'd say, Dawn, your girl's acting up. You better get down here. (laughs) Dawn, we need you downstairs. Something's going on. 
Carol's fired up over something, and I would come down, and she just got nicknamed, you know, your girl, so I just referred to her as my girl, Carol. I was entrusted to go buy honey buns and butterscotch crimpets. I mean, that's not, you know, when that supply runs low, <laughs> there was no better person at making sure that she always had her supplies of her snacks and her fun foods. Thank You're you, Marie. Thank you. Nice